Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's jump right in. <clears throat> we got a lot to talk about today. Um, okay, I know I have to tread lightly here. And my irreverent sense of humor and my general um, dislike of having my arm twisted, well, they're, they're making it difficult for me to tread lightly. And so it's, it's t- I just want you to understand, it's taking me some effort here not to be uh, heavy-handed <laughs> in what I'm about to bring up. But, uh, okay, it's Pride Month, right? There's rainbow flags everywhere. There's parades going on. And, you know, a lot of corporate uh, entities have gotten in on it. You know, you'll see rainbow li- logos. Hey, we're with you, too. And so when I saw this story about in Boston, Massachusetts, a group has uh, filed for a permit to hold a straight Pride Parade <clears throat> and the city of Boston apparently has had to agree to this in order to avoid a discrimination lawsuit that they knew they would lose. Now, it's uh, I think this is one of those cases where I guess you could safely call it fighting fire with fire. Let me give you some background on this. Uh, Pride Month kicked off yesterday or actually two days ago in Boston with a lights event, a paint night, preparations for a possible straight pride parade this summer. What? Yeah, the event is meant to celebrate heterosexuality in one of the nation's most gay friendly cities. It's it's also meant to poke fun at the identity politics of the political left. At least that's what organizer Mark Sahady wrote in a Facebook comment. The parade organizers have designed a flag. They've designated actor Brad Pitt as their mascot. Sahady said, for, you know, speaking of the, uh, of the Rainbow Coalition, he said, for them, everything is based upon identity and whether or not one is categorized as a victim or an oppressor. If you get victim status, then you're entitled to celebrate yourself and respect those with oppressor status to defer and expect those with, depre- with oppressor status to defer to your feelings. I don't disagree with him on this, by the way. That's that's how political correctness or cultural Marxism has worked as, as long as I've been aware of it. Now, organizers of the Straight Pride Parade tentatively plan to host the event on August 31st. So they've got a lot of time to plan for this. Uh, Sahady said they filed a discrimination complaint against Boston for permission to fly their straight pride pl- flag, which apparently the mayor of Boston is saying, I'm not going to let that fly at City Hall. The, the gay pride flag? Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. But not the straight one. Apparently, the parade will include floats and vehicles. It'll run from uh, Copley Square to City Hall. Same route as the official pride parade will take this coming Saturday. John Hugo is one of the straight pride parade's organizers, and he told the Washington Post that the keynote speaker would be a very famous gay conservative whom he declined to name. As the LGBT acronym grows to include queer, intersex, and asexual people, Hugo and his fellow organizers say, we also want to add an S for straight. So let's see, LGBTQS? Okay, why not? Criticizing Massachusetts' efforts to support the gay community is unfairly labeled as hate 
said Hugo. And the parade organizers say, we feel like we're an oppressed majority. He said, we want tolerance and we want tolerance for everybody, not just the LGBTQ community. Now, Hugo is a Republican who sought a congressional seat in Massachusetts 5th District last fall. He ran on a platform of eliminating the national debt, respect for law and order, confirming legal literalist judges, and focusing on how we are all one race, the human race. Meanwhile, a third organizer of the parade describes himself as a gay ambassador who challenges heterophobia. In a statement, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh declined to specifically address the straight pride parade, instead focusing on LGBTQ pride and encouraging people to attend the official pride parade and advocate equality for all. I would add to that who agree with him. (laughs) Every Boston, every year, rather, he says Boston hosts our annual pride week where the city comes together to celebrate the diversity, strength and acceptance of our LGBTQ community. Walsh said this in a statement. This is a special week that represents Boston's values of love and inclusion, which are unwavering. Now, the straight pride parade parallels similar calls by other majority groups that see themselves as persecuted. Some white voters who feel a strong attachment to their race have called on Congress to pass a law designating one month of the year as White History Month. On International Women's Day, Google searches for International Men's Day spike as some men wonder, well, when are we going to get a day all of our own? The answer, by the way, is November 19th of each year. Now, apparently, Boston has a history as a safe haven for the LGBTQ community. And thinking back, yeah, it was Massachusetts that was the first state that legalized same-sex marriage back in 2004. Let's see, who was governor at that time? Oh, yeah, that's right. Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Okay, just sorry, but sometimes I feel the need to remind my fellow Utahns, uh, it's not like this guy doesn't have a track record. In May of 2004, Boston-area residents Marsha Kaddish and Tanya McCloskey became the first same-sex couple in the U.S. to get legal marriage recognition. And the powerful advocacy group, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, was founded in Boston, rather, and is still located there. News of the straight pride parade took off on social media, hundreds of people cracking jokes about the event, others calling it sad. Linda DeMarco, president of Boston Pride, which is organizing this month's Pride Parade, says her group is focused on what she thinks will be the largest Boston Pride Parade ever. She says, we know that straight allies of the LGBTQ community are among the thousands of supporters who come out every year to march, observe, and celebrate. And she said, we're looking forward to seeing our straight friends, family, and neighbors at the Boston Pride Parade and Festival, along with members of the LGBTQ community. (sighs) Look, on the one hand, I get I get what the uh, straight pride parade folks are doing. And they're illustrating their point, I think, rather well. But I still have to ask this question. In the end, is is this really likely to uh, to change anybody's mind? Or is it just, you know, is it is it satire? Is it is it is it a finger in the eye of the people who are demanding your respect and your acceptance? I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. John Hugo, president of Super Happy Fun America, that's the group, by the way, sponsoring the Straight Pride Parade, says straight people are an oppressed majority. We will fight for the right of straights everywhere to express pride in themselves without fear of judgment and hate. The day will come when straights will finally be included as equals among all other orientations. 
Now, they actually have their own flag. It's a blue and pink flag with the interlocking male and female symbols, which represents the community. Unfortunately, the city of Boston, he says, has discriminated against their sexual orientation by denying us the opportunity to raise our flag at City Hall. Super Happy Fun America advocates on behalf of the straight community in order to build respect, inclusivity, equality, diversity, unity, solidarity, dignity, social mobility, empowerment, sustainability, justice, awareness, intersectionality. Oh, my heck. He's hitting every buzzword there is here. Human rights, education, access, participation, dialogue, visibility, tolerance and alliances with people from all walks of life. We encourage everyone to embrace our community's diverse history, culture, and identity, regardless of sexual orientation. I get the point that they're making. I really do. And I even think they're clever in in many ways for the way that they're doing it, because they're using the exact words of the supposed advocates of tolerance and inclusivity and diversity to illustrate that uh, it's, it's only tolerance and it's only inclusivity if you agree with the... LGBTQ rainbow activists. Even so, I I have to ask the question, does this really accomplish anything? Maybe it's a good outlet for those who are feeling frustrated. I don't like to be, you know, coerced and, and ordered. You will respect me. You want the surest way for me not to respect you? Just demand that I respect you. If you want me to respect you, there's a very simple way to do it. Behave in a respectful manner. You won't have to even ask it of me. You won't even have to politely inquire. Would you mind respecting me? If you are behaving as a respectable person, I have no choice but to give you my respect. Why? Because you're commanding my respect through the way that you conduct yourself, through the way that you respect yourself and the people around you. I can't help but respect you. Stamping your foot and demanding that I respect you and that I accept you and and do what you say. Nope, that's not going to provoke any respect, at least in my heart. It'll probably provoke a little bit of, uh, you know, resentment, maybe even a little contempt if you push it far enough. I think identity politics is poison. And even even when straight people, you know, satirically engage in it, it's still poison. Choose carefully what poisons you allow in your life. That's all I'm saying. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks for joining me today. All right, so I got it off my chest there. I Look, I'm not going to participate in any rainbow flag flying. I'm not going to be going to any parades. I'm sorry. You know what? uh, The people who are waving sex toys around as, as an expression of their pride... It's just that's just not my way that I would celebrate whatever it is that that they're they're proud of. In fact, I'm not even sure what that is. What I understand is, well, look, we've been uh, we have lived in the margins or we understand what it's like not to be accepted by mainstream society. And therefore, we are going to, you know, fearlessly reclaim our place among decent, respectable society. Really? And that's done by waving dildos around. Really? I, I had no idea. 
that that was that was how one staked their claim and planted their flag of uh, their place in respectable society. Because I had this mistaken impression that respectable society was was where uh, people recognize that we may have some differences. But because I treat you with respect, you can treat me with respect. And on those areas where we can't agree, we take the adult path and we leave each other alone. That, to me, seems like a better way. And I realize it's a, it's a divisive issue. But I think it's divisive because of the coercion that is used to try to force the issue. I saw a, a very interesting question a couple of days ago, and, and I've pondered this a little bit. In fact, I'll go ahead and ask the question of you. And if you want to if you want to chime in, feel free. 801-331-8113. Here's the question. What's the most surprising thing that you have seen or heard in the last 10 years? Now, I want you to think. Don't just don't just, you know, give me a you know quick knee jerk. Well, you know, just think about it for a second. A lot has happened in the last 10 years. What would you say is the most surprising thing that you've either seen or heard? I think for a lot of people, they might be tempted to say, well, look, Donald Trump getting elected. That was a surprise. And I, I wouldn't disagree. I don't I don't think there's any one right answer. That's what might stand out for a lot of folks. I mean, we were told he can't possibly win. He's never going to win. We cannot let him win. You better not let him win. Holy cow. He won. And, you know. It hasn't really slowed down much since then. If I had to choose, though, what, what's the most surprising thing that I have seen or heard in the last 10 years? This is kind of a general statement, but it would be how quickly American civil society has turned downward in that time. Now, what I mean by this is, folks, we're, we're arguing and we're talking about and we're we're rationalizing things that... The decent people kept private even 10 years ago. And the pressure is on. If you do not adhere to this, you know, informed or enlightened point of view, then you have no place among respectable society. We have a right to 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 beat you or to, to curse at you or hiss at you and throw trash at you as you walk down the street. OK, I may be just mildly exaggerating, but you know what? There are people who do hold that point of view. And I had this perception that the speed with which that downturn is taking place is increasing. I mean, it's, it's the sensation of uh, catching a really good, steep downhill on a skateboard. Gravity's taken over. I don't think we're quite at terminal velocity, but uh, it's, it's approaching and faster than most would think. The question I have here is, look, yeah, there was a time when uh, homosexuality was not considered mainstream, much less acceptable behavior. I mean, for the longest time, it was considered a mental illness. And that wasn't just because people were, you know, rude and uninformed or, you know, or bigoted. It's because there was a very clear definition of what is acceptable and what isn't. Now, we're, again, we're talking about behavior more so than people. When you're evaluating practices, that's not the same thing as judging a person. What you do may very well contribute to the kind of person that you are, but it's not the sum of who you are. And thank goodness. 
Because every one of us has made mistakes. Every one of us has done things for which we're like, you know what? I'm kind of, I'm ashamed of that. I wish I hadn't done that. And the beautiful thing about life is when we make mistakes, we can all pick up, make course corrections, adjust our course as necessary, and move on in a happier, more productive direction. But in order to do that, there has to be some kind of objective standard of right and wrong. And I'm not just talking in in the sense of just traditional religious morality. That's a good guide, especially if you're going to be teaching, you know, right and wrong to large groups of people. What I'm suggesting here is that you cannot have good character without a clear sense of right and wrong. And you know what? Forcing your viewpoint on people or defining deviancy down to where, well, it's really nothing. That's not how it's done. I know people say, well, it's hysterical to to think that, uh, you know, the uh, same sex, you know, or LGBT activism is going to somehow lead to the uh, mainstreaming of, of practices like pedophilia or bestiality. But why wouldn't it? I mean, come on, follow the thinking through to its logical end. Once we take away the idea that uh, that anything can be considered deviant. Come on, nothing is deviant in our in our society anymore. Then what are the limits? See, I'm not talking about let's let's go find people to persecute. Let's go find people to feel better than. And I'm going to acknowledge there are there are people for whom um, same sex attraction or even I, I'll I'll say it some perversions are a very strong and very real temptation for them. I don't understand, you know, why why it all happens like this. The human sex drive is one of the most powerful appetites that we possess. And when we fixate on certain things, it can become it can become corrupted into, you know, things that that would would just absolutely shock and sicken you. If you know anybody who's dealt with pornography addiction, you can start to grasp that uh, there there is no end to the kinds of deviancy that that people are willing to embrace and and celebrate. There's no end to what can be fetishized. But the question you have to ask at some level is, does this make you a better person, or does this make a better for a better society? When we make the pursuit of pleasure king among all things in our lives. And I think historically the answer has been societies that embrace pleasure at any cost are the societies that go into irreversible decline. They're the civilizations that fall. And they fall because they just don't have the moral character to keep their momentum and keep their energy directed in a positive direction. Look, every one of us knows someone who is gay. Without a doubt, we all know people who are gay. And I'm here to tell you, God loves his gay children. He does. He loves people, no matter what they may be contending with. No matter what tendencies they may have. No matter what behaviors they feel drawn to. 
They have value in his sight. They're his children. And as such, we owe them respect and love and understanding. Now, at the same time, we owe them the kind of compassion that comes from not encouraging or trying to enable behavior that's destructive or unhappy or unproductive. That doesn't mean we have to stop in and save them from themselves, but it also means we don't, uh, we don't lie and say, hey, oh, it's, uh, that's great. You just be you. Any more than you would say to someone who has a genetic predisposition to, say, uh, alcohol addiction, hey, man, drink up. You were born that way. Look, love has got to be the component. It's got to be voluntary. I guess I'll just leave it at that. Serious about making a difference? We know exactly where you're coming from. We are the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Look, if you need to set me straight, please feel free. You're not going to offend me. I just, uh, I, I had to get this off my chest and, and I feel better for having done so. But I'm, I'm telling you, if you need to weigh in, you are welcome to do so. Again, 801-331-8113. Okay, there's a lot of other good stuff going on here. Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of other things. Oh, this was, this was fascinating. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a science guy. I do like some science fiction, but I, I'm not a scientist. But when I saw the headline, the sun has reached solar minimum and its surface is ominously calm. I remembered my friend Ralph DeLugas, who hosts The Truth is Stranger Than Fiction every Friday right here on uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I thought, hmm, now this is this sounds like something Ralph might talk about. And you know, when I hear the term solar minimum, if someone were to ask, well, what exactly does that mean? I, up until I had read this article, I don't know that I could have given any kind of a definition. Now I would just say, as I understand it, a solar minimum is when the solar activity is at its lowest. And this is a cyclical thing. So what does it all mean? Well, here's an article from metro.co.uk that explains why scientists are keeping a very close eye on this. And I really, even so, I'd still like to get a good second uh, opinion from my friend Ralph, just because I think he would have a great take on this. The surface of the sun, the article says, is normally a roiling, superheated hellscape. Hmm, descriptive. But NASA images have revealed that the face of our star is looking ominously calm right now, prompting claims it's reached a stage of its cycle called the solar minimum. During the minimum, there are significantly fewer sunspots and its magnetic field weakens. And what happens is this allows cosmic rays from outside our solar system to rain down on Earth. Now, that doesn't pose a threat to anyone here on Earth. but It can be risky for astronauts and sometimes for satellites that are outside of our atmosphere. The website Space Weather wrote, The sun has been without spots for 16 consecutive days. That's a sign that a solar minimum is underway. Many people think solar minimum is uninteresting, but the article says not so. This phase of the solar cycle brings extra cosmic rays and long-lasting holes in the sun's atmosphere. And this solar slowdown often causes temporary cooling in Earth's atmosphere. 
Now, the article says climate change deniers often hail this cooling as evidence that the heating of our world is about to go into reverse. Sadly, this is very unlikely to be true because the sun follows an 11-year cycle, meaning it will simply spring back to life in the coming years. And here's the kicker. Once activity ramps up, the sun will be rocked by an increased number of what is what NASA is calling gigantic monster explosions. They warned about this last week. Eruptions from the face of our star are called prominences, and they cause vast amounts of super hot gas to shoot into space, often forming beautiful loops on the solar surface. They actually have a really nice uh, video. I, I don't know if it's an animation or if this is actual, you know, um, filtered footage that demonstrates this. During the solar minimum, the number of flares and sunspots is dramatically reduced. And when the sun leaps back from its minimum after roughly 11 years, we're likely to see more and more ferocious explosions on the sun. And here's the warning that NASA offers. After our sun passes the current solar minimum, solar activity like eruptive prominences are expected to become more common over the next few years. And the space agency has just released a dramatic, dramatic pictures of a monster solar prominence recording by its Solar Dynamic Observatory in 2011. I guess that is a real film then, which shows what we should expect when the sun's minimum reaches its end. NASA said the dramatic explosion captured in ultraviolet light in the featured time-lapse video covering 90 minutes where a new frame was taken every 24 seconds. It's pretty cool when they show it in time-lapse. I mean, it is incredible. The scale of the prominence is huge. NASA says the entire Earth would easily fit under the flowing curtain of hot gas. A solar prominence is channeled and sometimes held above the sun's surface by the sun's magnetic field. Okay, now here's where it gets a little technical. The article says a quiescent prominence usually lasts about a month and may erupt in a coronal mass ejection, or CME, expelling hot gas into the solar system. The energy mechanism that creates a solar prominence, prominence is still a topic of research. And the prominence is not necessarily a threat to the Earth because they tend to loop into space and then fall back into the sun. But that coronal mass ejection that can sometimes be caused causes billions of tons of particles to gush outwards at high speed. And these eruptions are generally only strong enough to cause problems for communication satellites or other spacecraft. Sometimes, however, they're much stronger and they could be powerful enough to impair human civilization. At least that's the warning NASA gave earlier this year. The most famous coronal mass ejection took place in 1859. It caused a geomagnetic storm called the Carrington event as a pulse of charged particles bombarded Earth's magnetosphere. Now think about where technology was in 1859 versus where it is today. The point here being if it happened today, the results could be devastating. In April, NASA wrote that the Carrington event compressed the Earth's magnetic field so violently that it created currents in telegraph wires so great, many wires sparked and gave the telegraph operators shocks. I guess it's like a giant EMP. And NASA says, were a Carrington-class event to impact the Earth today, speculation holds that damage might occur to global power grids and electronics on a scale never yet experienced. Kind of makes you think about, uh, makes you think about uh, books like uh, Lights Out or One Second After by William Forston. 
I know those are worst case scenarios, and I'm certainly not trying to encourage you. Hey, let's all be fearful. Hey, man, you better you better go check your supplies in the bunker, man. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But I found this article fascinating just because it addresses the possibility that maybe there could be an issue if we have a so-called Carrington event as a result of the sun coming out of solar minimum. Probably something just to keep an eye on. I'm not uh, I'm not trying to tell you, boy, be scared, be very afraid. But I kind of miss the days when all I really had to worry about was, uh, I wonder if I'm going to burn. I'm pretty fair-skinned. So I'm either going to freckle or I'm going to burn if I'm outside for any period of time. Not much I can do, though, if there's a big electromagnetic pulse that, uh, you know, starts damaging electronics. Look, I've been in radio long enough and, and remember the days of uh, when we when we were using, you know, uh, purely satellite delivery for many of the syndicated programs that we carried, especially on talk radio. And there were certain war- there were warnings that would go out about twice a year. Hey, this is a time we're going to have sunspots. And, and I, I couldn't even tell you exactly how those sunspots work but I know that they they interfered with our satellite dish's ability to receive a good, clear signal from the satellite that was sending us the the data and sending us the uh, audio that we were carrying, you know, the Rush Limbaugh show or Sean Hannity or Dr. Laura or something like that. And it was a minor inconvenience. You know, we'd have an outage for four or five minutes you know, it's rare for it to go any longer. That sometimes it'd be just as short as 30 seconds. But we'd be going along and suddenly, hey, where, where did the why, is the, why is the station off the air? It wasn't really off the air. It was just we weren't getting the satellite signal that, uh, that we should have been getting. But I'm not aware of a coronal mass ejection taking place. And, and maybe this is something better suited, you know, for, uh, you know, George Norrie, you know, coast to coast AM. Maybe this is something that the sci-fi folks should be looking into. But I thought you might find it interesting. And I would ask you, you know, just pose the question. If, if I had to make do, if I knew that the power grid might be interrupted for a period of time, and I'm not talking for a few hours, but if you knew it was going to be interrupted for maybe a matter of days, maybe a matter of weeks, would you have some way to... Would you have a way to back up what you're doing, to do what you're doing, cook your food, preserve your food, heat your water, whatever the case is, without electricity? And for most of us, the answer is like, well, no, it would kind of, it would stink. Look, I've watched people start to lose their minds after three or four hours of a power outage. Now, granted, this was in southern Utah. Sometimes the summer temperatures can get hot, especially in St. George. It wasn't uncommon after a you know power outage of a few hours to see people load the kids in the car. Come on, kids, we're heading for Cedar City an hour away. What are you going to do? Well, first of all, we're going to go to a drive-through up there, and we're going to buy dinner because you know they still have power. And if we uh, hear that the power's still out back in St. George, we're gonna we're gonna rent a hotel room because it has air conditioning. It's weird. People start to congregate at the convenience stores. The gas pumps don't work. Again, not trying to scare you, but it's just trying to say, wouldn't it be great to think about something like that ahead of time and have your preparations in order? 
beforehand. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. So amidst all the talk about, uh, hey, let's not get the fear going. Would you like to know what uh, what more Americans are afraid of, or at least what, what they consider a big, big problem? Bigger than terrorism? This actually surprised me. Fake news. This is an article on Axios.com. By Sarah Fisher, a poll shows Americans view fake news as a bigger problem than terrorism. It says Americans view made up news and information as a bigger problem than other critical issues, including terrorism, immigration, climate change and racism. That's according to a new survey from the Pew Research Center. So why does it matter? Well, the survey finds that Americans feel more worried today about fake news because it's undermining their trust in key institutions like government and the media. Now, I just want to point out here, if, if you haven't got your hands on a copy of The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe, they talk about this in their book. Part of a fourth turning is confidence in institutions that stand around us, institutions we've come to trust, begins to fall. And that's what you see happening. The article goes on to say the only issues that, may, that rank higher than made-up news and information are really big problems as really big problems in this country today are things like drug addiction, the affordability of health care, the U.S. political system, and the income gap. Interesting. Now, an overwhelming majority of Americans, 68%, said they believe made-up news and information has a big impact on their trust in government, according to the survey. More than half, 54% of Americans, say it impacts their confidence in other Americans. More than half, 51%, say it impacts the ability of political leaders to get work done. Okay, can I just ask you something here? This will be my, my informal poll, unscientific, but... How often do you lay at why, uh, awake at night worrying? You know, politicians just aren't getting their work done these days. There's a lot of gridlock or there's not much happening. I sure wish the politicians could get more of their work done. Man, I don't feel that way. I like to see politicians failing to get their work done because their work, by and large, seems to consist of creating new rules that either are going to cost me money or limit my ability to choose my pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Now, I'm not being flip when I say this. You know, there are, there are enough laws on the books to deal with any conceivable harm or any conceivable wrong that a person could do to another person. Most of the work of political leaders that they're trying to get done has to do with them injecting more of what they do into our lives and asserting more authority over areas of our lives that were once considered sacred and private and free from government interference. So I may be an outlier. It's very possible I'm the only one who feels this way, but I actually prefer when they're not able to get their work done. While most Americans blame political leaders and activist groups for creating misinformation Instead of blaming journalists for it, most say the news media is most responsible for fixing the problem. Interesting. Republicans blame journalists more for the issue than Democrats, according to the survey. 
I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that in most newsrooms across America, if you were to ask what to, you know, what is your political affiliation or what do you find yourself voting most of the time in elections? I think you would find somewhere in the high 90 percent range that Democrat is is the party that most of these journalists are going to identify with. Now, there are journalists who nonetheless are able to keep their personal biases or their personal point of view out of the work they do. But I also feel like there's sometimes enough consensus that it's not a matter of, you know, our bias is showing. It's a matter of, well, everybody thinks this way. Yeah, everybody within your echo chamber thinks that way. But it doesn't mean that everybody does. And truly objective journalism, man, it's it's a welcome thing when you can find some journalist who is willing to and able to put his or her personal preferences aside in order to report on what's going on. I, I hold up Glenn Greenwald, founder of The Intercept, as one of the best examples of this that I know of. I don't think Glenn Greenwald would necessarily qualify as a conservative. I don't know what his uh, I, I'm assuming he would probably lean fairly hard to the left. After all, he's gay. He and his spouse, uh, another guy, lived together in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, I think he, he would probably lean a little more left than not. But I honestly can't tell from the way he writes where he stands because he doesn't interject politics. And when he calls out politicians or he calls out people who are, are uh, you know perpetuating falsehoods, he does it without first checking, well, wait a minute, are you one of us or not? And to me, that makes him an indispensable truth teller. I'll give him greater credibility. That doesn't mean, oh, I believe everything he says. You know, I don't ever have to question it. But there's a credibility that he has built, at least with with me. When I read his stuff, I tend to give it a little more weight than I do other journalists that maybe are a little less restrained in shaping the narrative in a way that agrees with their worldview. And I know that's those are fighting words. You say that to a journalist, a real journalist, and they're going to get mad. How dare you accuse me of bias? Don't you know how persecuted my profession is? But I've also seen what, uh, you know, what journalism can be like, especially at the national level, especially, you know, the politically motivated journalism. I'm not calling it a conspiracy. It's it's consensus. And that consensus, unfortunately, gives the impression that, well, let me explain this to you, youngster. Here's the way the cow chewed the cabbage. I realize I'm painting with a broad brush here. If If you are a journalist and I'm offending you by saying this, my apologies. I don't know every journalist. I'm just I'm 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 speaking to a general stereotype that I've observed in 35 years in working in the media. And and look, conservative journalism, I need to say this, it's just as biased. The big picture is, look, misinformation has existed always in various forms, but the Internet era has made the problem harder to stop in real time. And I have to ask the question, why do you need to stop it? And how do you propose to stop it? I mean, come on, YouTube made another big move yesterday. We're stopping hate. Well, you're just, you know, demonetizing people's platforms. You're not stopping anything. You're just, you know, 
catering to what you want to cater to. That's and and that's fine. It's your it's your platform. I used to have people ask me, why don't you have uh, who was the he was a pretty well renowned um, white supremacist in southern Utah. Johnny Johnny Bangerter, I think was his name. Um, when I first moved to southern Utah. People would ask me, well, why don't you ever have him on your program? Why don't you have it? You know, because they wanted to hear some sensational, you know, they wanted to hear some some rambling or incendiary kind of rhetoric. And I would never have him on It's And, and by the way, Johnny never approached me himself. So it's not like it's not like he was, you know, begging to be on the radio with me. He wasn't. It was just other people who were like, yeah, I'd really love to hear, you know, uh, something really controversial. But I wouldn't go there. And the reason I wouldn't go there is because I ruthlessly censor everybody who disagrees with me. No, that's not it at all. My take was, hey, if he wants to build his own platform and speak his mind, he is welcome to do so. But as long as, you know, this platform, in this case, you know, the, the radio show that I was doing, um, as long as that's this is a platform for which I have stewardship, I'm going to say... Build your own platform if if that's the approach you're going to take. If you, if you want to take, you know, a hateful approach. Now, I don't believe for a minute the people who are being banned and demonetized by YouTube, for instance. Steven Crowder, I get it. He's a rabble rouser, but I don't see anything hateful in what he's doing. I do see him calling people out and holding them accountable for some pretty radical things that they're willing to engage in. But I don't see him being hateful. So when people talk about, well, how do we stop the problem? Why does it need to be stopped? The antidote is more truth, more free speech, not less. According to the poll by the Pew Research Center, more than half of Americans sometimes come across fake news online. Many report changing their Internet habits to lessen their overall intake of fake news as a result. Now, keep in mind, fake news and misinformation, these are abstract terms which give people in power, such as President Trump, room to weaponize the term in order to denounce news they don't like. And this has dramatically exposed more Americans to the debate around the problems it causes for society, and it likely impacts their view of it as an important issue. Could be interesting to see how things shake out as uh, the 2020 election approaches. I don't think the problem is going to get better over time, and apparently a majority of those surveyed say they don't think it is either. So what can we do? We can propaganda-proof ourselves. That's a topic for another show. Finally, a national media platform that focuses on what you stand for instead of telling you who or what you should be against. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 